0: telescopes and accessories. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another Space Junk Podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and my co-host is Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescope. You out there, Dustin? I'm here,
1: Tony. We are hey. uh, in the middle right now. We just threw a 130-inch screen on the wall so that we can race here at OPT when we are not on the phone. So Jenny and I are both uh, sitting in this room sweaty And, uh, trying to, you know, we just ran out of there getting, we, we bought a little race car actually, like a little race car body that we could throw a steering wheel and shifter and pedals on because, uh, something very important here at OPT is racing with the entire staff. (laughs) What do you mean? Like, like
0: video game racing?
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Video game race. So we're going to have, uh, you know, quarterly tournaments where we have a game room here where we have like arcade games, ping pong table, foosball, and then we have, you know, this race car set up. And uh, we just got that installed today with like this big projector, you know, and an Xbox. And so we we ran right out of there into this podcast to get this
0: thing going. So um, exciting times. Oh, man, I am working in the wrong place. I, I That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. Uh, you know, what do you in your arcade, do you have like classic video games too? Or is it oh, all the... Oh,
1: yeah, only the classics. Oh, so oh man. The,
0: the one that gets beat up the most
1: is Pac-Man. You know, we got all the Pac-Mans in there. Oh, do you? <laughs> but, you know, we have sticky notes on each game. So whoever sets the the record their name goes on a sticky note and then a you know a snide remark about whoever was the champion now being you know basically i don't even know if i should talk about some of the notes that go don't get on there but they're interesting <laughs> and so our uh, our developer here the one that codes to our website is like the pac-man champ and uh, he just beat my high score by double and um so the whole staff is kind of you know beating up on that game trying to trying to top this thing but it'll be a while this guy is
0: this guy's that's next always level. always the way it is. This, the, never, <laughs> never, never mess with the software engineers in the group. Exactly. It's almost always... not fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really but, cool. But so anyway, hundred So you got a yeah. 130-inch t- monitor sitting up there with an Xbox connected to it.
1: Yeah. It's basically like a whole wall is, um, is a screen and got an Xbox. And then, like I said, you know, there's a racing chair so that we can all uh, – compete with each other and there's a lot of fun that happens here man there's like putt putt and you know i mean we work in the world's greatest toy store we want to have fun and i think that that people here having fun translates well to people calling for something that is fun for them as well you know we got to be having fun if we want other people to have fun so it's a good time but
0: anyway got my uh, i know Well, we just we just finished uh, talking with Ralph Emerson last week about uh, talk about toys. Wow. He's got some major toys at Plane Wave. So that was a pretty cool uh, podcast as well. If you guys haven't heard it, you got to go check it out. It's the one from last week. It's up now. Everywhere yeah. podcasts can be heard. Um, so to, what do we got this week, Dustin?
1: So I have my best friend in the world here sitting next to me, actually my business partner and uh, someone that everything I do, I pretty much do with her. So I got Ginny here in the room and she's the other half of OPT. Ginny, welcome.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome, everybody.
0: Hi, Glad to be Jenny. here. Yeah, that would be Ginny St. Lawrence, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I just want to get the full name in there so people know who we're talking with. So you help run OPT. Now you sanctioned this video game thing? You're you're okay with all this with the with the huge screen? <laughs>
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You're the one in there uh, racing the most, aren't you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not yet, uh, but I will definitely take on every challenger once we get up and going with it, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, man. That, that sounds great. I So you guys are posting a lot of this stuff. I, I, I've seen now that you've brought it up. I've seen the arcade room on your Instagram account, so I know mm-hmm. what you're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. Well, good. Well, today's topic is going to be on the issue of science and art because Jenny as i understand it i mean dustin is an amateur he's an amateur astronomer he's also a, a astrophotographer and he and you both got into the amateur astronomy hobby at roughly the same time as i understand it but you are more i think of an artist in terms of your uh, creativity levels and your and your interest level, right?
2: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly how we got started into this uh, astronomy realm to begin with, was, you know, um, I was painting large abstract uh, pieces at the time when we were living back in Tennessee. And um, yeah, if we could just dive right into the story. Um, Go right ahead. Yeah, let's, okay. let's do it. Okay, yeah, and Dustin surprised me with this crazy thing. I, I come home... And in the living room, there's just this massive object with a sheet over it. And he's like, I got you a surprise. I'm like, oh, man. And and at the time, we were talking about African gray birds. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with them. So I'm thinking like, you know, holy shit, he got us a bird. Uh, we have birds now. Like, this is a new pet or something. Um, and I, I pulled the sheet back to reveal this. Crazy looking device. It looked honestly like a cannon that Evil Can Evil shoots out of. And I'm like, I look at Dustin, I'm like, what the hell is this thing? And, um, She's it,
1: talking about a Dobsonian. Yeah, it was a Dobsonian <laughs> telescope. For,
2: for th- It does look like that. <laughs> that. It does look just like a cannon <laughs> yeah.
0: that evil Knievel would get shot out of. One, 100%.
2: <laughs> uh, and I'm glad that you you feel the same way because some people look at me, you know, like I have five Are heads when I say that. about to
0: become daredevils?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a truss tube, too. So it was one of the Skywatcher truss tubes. It really does look like a cannon. I never thought about yeah. that until she believed it was one.
2: Yeah, and I'm like, what is this thing? And so, you know, he um, he goes on to explain and he had found this on Craigslist and uh, we had a couple eyepieces. And, man, I mean, we we took it out, um, I think, that first night and looked at the moon and it was just absolutely life changing. Um, and he, he purchased this because when we'd come home at night, I'd always look up the night sky. We lived in a relatively remote area of Tennessee, um, or at least our neighborhood was relatively dark. And so that was that telescope was an inspiration to some of my artwork. Um, and it just, man, we just took off. It was one thing after another, going to star parties. Um, next thing you know, we're attaching cameras to the telescope and wanting to take pictures and share that with our friends and family. Um, so yeah, something, uh, it, you know, a small gift to inspire really large abstracts that I was doing at the time um, in my studio there at, at our house kind of brought us to where we are today, you know, which is, it's, it's a long journey, but um, it started with art for sure.
0: So you, you use the telescope then as inspiration for your art, which you said is, is abstract in nature. So you were able to sort of connect with the cosmos through the eyepiece, looking at whatever you were looking at with the Dobsonian and then translate that into your artwork.
2: Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, not so much translate the way that um, Kat Machen does, for example. I mean, she's extremely talented. She's able to take an image and really reproduce that in such a beautiful way that, I mean, she's extremely talented.
0: Yeah, um, she is. Uh, let me just mention to our listeners that Kat Machen was a guest a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and she does uh, realistic or I should say, scientifically accurate uh, paintings using uh, all kinds of amazing techniques. But listen to that podcast uh, as a few weeks ago. She is unbelievable.
1: She yeah really
2: is. I mean what what she can do with with a paintbrush and and her tool I mean, absolutely incredible. So it wasn't so much um that type of art, like taking what I'm seeing in the eyepiece and or on the camera and, and kind of um taking that image and and putting that on a canvas. It was more um the philosophical connection I would say um that was more of the inspiration um if if that makes sense.
0: what do you mean? well, not really, what do you mean by philosophical connection?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, if you think about it, when you look up at the night sky, you see the moon and the stars. You know, that's the same exact sky that um, some of the greatest artists that ever walked the face of the earth drew inspiration from. Um, You know, Van Gogh, um, even some of the greatest poets, Shakespeare, some of the greatest authors. These are the same night skies and the and the same um, questions and inspiration. I think and introspection um, that when they looked up at the moon and they saw the stars and they just the night sky in general, that drastically shaped their work um, for whatever reason it may be. You can see it in Shakespeare's poets. You can see it in in some of Van Gogh's uh, work. And to me, that that connection was really, really powerful. And I think that was a lot of Dustin's intention in buying the telescope was more of that um, introspective connection for me and that philosophical connection.
1: That's such an interesting thought too, that every human in history. So anybody you've ever heard about or read about or read their work or anything, when you're talking about, you know, Shakespeare writing about the moon or the stars, he's writing about the exact same one that you see now. Or you know anybody. Anybody at any point in time, they were looking at the same night sky and that that really is a pretty interesting connection that we have to our past.
0: And to me it's always been a really good indicator of just how Short of a time, human beings have been around. I mean, these when you look at the moon, you know the the hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand years ago, early humans were looking at it, uh, and these these objects, all of it, our solar system, our planets, the. The stars themselves just, just such longer lifespans than us. And for me, it's always one of those, I'm just a blink of an eye, just a blink of a blink of an eye because our, the entire human civilization can be measured in just a few thousand years, but the universe is on orders of so much greater billions of years. And so to me, I always get that way when I'm under the stars and it's, you know, some, like I was looking at the the uh, eclipse last weekend. And I just, all I did was I got a lawn chair out, some binoculars, just started watching and those thoughts always end up creeping into my head you know how many lunar eclipses have been seen by humanity you know and and uh, what what did it inspire in them so this is it's a it sort of inspired me to also do deep astronomy because the big thing we do there is provide perspective and so that's that's one of the things that i think is the stars do better than anything
1: you know, it was one of, my, uh, one of my proudest moments of the team here this week uh, when, you know, the, the eclipse happened mm-hmm. because our mission here, and we say it all the time, is to give people access to the universe you know, and to do exactly what you're talking about, Tony, I mean, there's, there's a connection that happens that's different from anything else in life. And that, that really was the purpose of the telescope was every time Jenny would get out of the car, the first thing that would happen is her neck would go all the way back to look up at the sky, you know, (laughs) and, and see what's up there. And you can just see this happen. And it happens with everyone. When you see people at star parties or any of these events, it happens with everybody. Humans are connected in that way. And, um, I think that this week when the eclipse happened, you know, I didn't even realize that that, uh, our observatories were going to be used in that way this weekend, but we've made them accessible to our affiliates and to other people to use. And so I was with friends and showing them the eclipse and it got cloudy. I was like, you know what? I'm going to just see if I can find if anybody's using our observatories to live stream this to Mm -hmm. show anyone. So I Google it and it (laughs) says the eclipse. Whatever wolf moon eclipse, whatever they called it this time, yeah. brought yeah. to you, brought to you by OPT. I click on it and it's a live stream from Fraser Kane showing the eclipse. And then our other observatory um, coming from Skylius showing the eclipse. And we've got a friend in LA showing the eclipse and there's like 300,000 people on just his account. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other two are obviously huge accounts. And so this stuff is showing like these observatories are showing people in real time, this eclipse that's happening when half the country is clouded over and the comments that were coming through were exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That connection was very real and people were talking about it in a way that I feel like matters. And, you know, it was definitely one of the best moments seeing like it's coming together, like yeah. it's working.
0: Yeah. And was this, did you, you guys intended this from the beginning uh, to do this kind of thing? You say now that, you know, you've always wanted to bring the stars to everybody. When you first got into amateur astronomy and then your interest grew and you started working in the field, uh-huh. wh- how did that, Evolve. was it always something in the back of your mind or did it just did you just like look at each other one day and say hey you know what we we can do a lot more
1: <laughs> no no we didn't <laughs> want to buy this company <laughs> <laughs> like let's just let's just call it what it is i mean yeah. we didn't move here to buy this company no not at all i mean we we moved out here to just be closer we wanted to do our own astrophotography and at the time jenny and i were married mm-hmm. and our plan was to just travel around the country going to dark sites, bringing telescopes, and just doing astrophotography. And we did that for a while. And when we realized you know, there are a lot of challenges and the people at OPT have every answer you can possibly imagine, we moved out here simply to work at OPT and be closer to the people with answers. We had zero intention of buying the company at all. And everything else came afterwards. But once we made that decision, it was very clear, okay, we have an opportunity to give back To a community that right now can do more than we've ever seen. There is an open door here to help people wider than I've ever seen anywhere in any industry I've ever been a part of. Let's do this. Let's find ways to really make this accessible and share this with as many people as possible. It's worth doing that.
2: Yeah, it was definitely not a, a, you know, strategic or we didn't have any kind of game plan. It was very much how Dustin described it. It was a, it was a passion project. I mean, I remember the first time we hooked up, um, I think we traded our Dobver refractor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You got an Explorer AR 152.
2: 152. Yeah. And I remember the first night out with that, um, I connected my Nikon, that, that was a camera I had at the time to the moon and use this free software to basically override the camera's internal operation so I could use longer um, exposure times than, than what the camera allowed. And I think it gave me like two or 300 shots. Um, and that was all I could do until I had to buy the software. And I, I'm pretty sure I took every single – of the, uh, all of those two or 300 shots of the moon. Um, and each one was just more exciting than the next. It was like, oh, my gosh, but I can see, you know, this crater or <laughs> this uh, – you know, it just – it was so – it just completely blew my mind what we were looking at. And it was just the moon.
1: And it was the same photo over and over for 300 times. And she showed me every single one. <laughs> Look at this yeah, one. I Look mean, at this one. It, yeah. I,
2: it, was, it was super exciting. And um, I remember I had a journal. I would always journal when we'd be out in the field, um, whether we were at star parties, uh, you know, whether we brought our own scopes or not, we were observing or taking images and I remember journaling. You know, this is such a cool experience. I want to be able to share this with everyone I know, and even people I don't know. Um, and there were like ten explanation marks that that came after that journal entry. Um, and it, I, I think, yeah, there's just something about the perspective that it gives you. Um, and man, we that kind of hooked our hearts a little bit and and wanting to be close to the people that could give us the answers and that could tie us closer to this passion. And, um, you know, certain doors just opened where it made sense for us to step in and kind of step up and say, hey, you know, we we're in a position to take this company on. And, and so we did that. Um, but definitely was not the intentions at, at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's one thing to buy a telescope. Uh, shop that you know buys and and sells telescopes to others but it's but you guys have this you guys are bringing extra things to this whole idea that I think are very timely and you're actually leveraging a lot of technology that exists now that didn't exist even say five years ago with this idea of remote observatories, bringing the skies to everyone, social media and your Instagram accounts as well as getting, you know, just there's all kinds of ways you're getting people involved over and above just selling telescopes. And I think that's something that you're bringing to the, to the hobby as well. This new way of, of getting access to the night sky that doesn't necessarily involve spending thousands of dollars. You can go out and uh, and just interact with the, 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 the stuff that you guys are putting out there in the community uh, free of charge. So I really think that's a real strength also for what you guys have done. You've taken your vision of, yeah, let's get this company but let's, let's do so much more. And that's the value I think you're bringing to the hobby as well. Not, not the least of which, you know, the things like the filters and stuff like that, that you're also developing on the technical side. So, um, I think it's extraordinary. And what I also am learning through this, these podcasts and with interacting with you guys more is this connection between not just Amateur astronomy, astrophotography, science, but also art. It's coming together in ways I never really appreciated until I started talking with Dustin and and uh, uh, Kat Machen and now you. I guess I'd like to understand for you, Jenny, the, that connection a little bit more. You are an artist, it sounds like first, and a, an amateur astronomer and am, astrophotographer second. And the, how has that connection worked out for you in your? you know, and just in your daily life, how do you reconcile these two?
2: That's a great question. I think it's really easy to take something like science that is, uh, kind of rooted in, um, certain methods and, and processes, um, logic and reason and, you know, fact, and you have to validate certain things, um, to, to create these findings. Um, and then you have art, which is, you know, really from, um, man, I I don't know how to, it's illogical. It's, it's not, um, a lot of times there is no rhyme or reason. Um, and even some people's process, like you ask some artists and they can tell you down to the the finite detail of how they produce their art. And then some people are like, man, I just kind of get in this flow state and everything else is, I, I just tunnel vision in on my art. I don't really know how I do it. I just get locked in and I go for it. Um, so I think that a lot of people try to separate the two and kind of put them in their boxes. Um, but for me, they're two in the same. Um, and what bridges that gap for me is, is that philosophical, um, perspective, right. And, and that the questions that sort of come for me from astronomy, um, to inspire some of my artwork, why are we here? What are we doing on this planet? Um, is there life out out there? Um, you start kind of asking yourself all of these questions that, can be philosophical uh, and kind of artistic in nature but also you can always bring it back with science right so um the two hold hands i think in a in a really beautiful and intricate marriage that um I, i'm not sure I honestly know how to articulate in in a, an effective way.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think that you kind of nailed it there when you're talking about art and philosophy, because, you know, you've got the what, when, where, how questions right. that, you know, those are these science questions matter for survival and always have. But why is not a question that matters for survival generally? That's your philo- philosophical question. And I think that that's the question that, you know, both address is both art and you know, philosophy is why. And um, I think that it it has its own value and approaching it a little bit differently, even using the tools like advancing your knowledge is something that, you know, a lot of the art that exists today could not be done without science. And so, yeah, I think the two are intrinsically linked. And the more one progresses, the more the other is able to.
2: Yeah, I agree with that 100%.
0: Yeah, there's also a sort of a perceived war between science uh, and religion. And I have always fought against that notion because when the, it's also analogous to being a war between science and philosophy. And the question of why something is the way it is, is not a scientific question. And so a lot of people confuse or conflate the two uh, and think that, well, OK, I'm uh, there's a Big distrust of science in a lot of realms. We've talked about people who are who believe that the Earth is flat. We also know a lot of people who uh, go against a lot of other uh, scientific ideas, like vaccines and things like this. And I I became curious as to why there is such a distrust of science now. And I think part of it is is that it's it's becoming more compartmentalized in a way that I think is a little bit unhealthy. So what you're doing, Jenny, and what other artists like Kat are doing, is trying to break that compartmentalization down in a way that's healthy. They're saying, okay, look, science has questions that it asks, and it has questions that it can answer. Art and philosophy have issues that they resolve in their own way that is not in any way a part of science, but they can meld in quite beautiful ways. The inspiration, what we learn about nature from science, can inspire us to think About Well, what does all this mean? And art can can show you pictorial representations of what it might mean. Uh, Philosophical ideas can help us explain why things are the way they are and why we may only be the only people in the universe, or maybe the universe is teeming with life. So it's okay, I think, and and even appropriate to separate science and things like religion. But there is also a, a way to meld the two. And that's something I'm learning that artists are doing more and more in a way that I think is actually healthy. There's an unhealthy way to do it, which ends up with these big arguments and and flame wars about, well, you know, I don't trust science. And then there's the ones who are able to meld these things in quite beautiful ways.
1: Yeah, well, I I think you're right and it is it is interesting, right? It's 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 a pretty interesting question I think how the two really are linked. Not even just religion and science or art and science, but even just morality, like the broader scope. Are the two, you know, independent or are they dependent on each other? I I would argue they are completely dependent on each other.
0: Yes, and in ways that are actually quite physically relevant because back in the days of the nineteen fifties we were developing the atomic bomb. Well, okay, sure. Science can figure it out, but should we figure this out? Right? Is there is this is this a line we should cross? And yeah. there was really good moral questions to be asked about whether we should be developing and dropping atomic weapons. And those questions are still very relevant today. So yes, I think science and, and morality do have a good, a good link together. In, in those- fact they always should those questions don't and can't exist until the technology
1: exists to provide us with those questions. Like you're not going to be asking, you know, <laughs> questions on morality of atomic bombs if there is no such thing, right? That's, very That's true.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: And now the big so, thing is genetics, right? Or the, uh, uh, there's this CRISPR technology out there where they can actually edit genes. Uh, and we can now, presumably in the near future, be able to decide what characteristics we want human beings to have and which ones we don't want them to have. There's some good moral questions there to oh, be yeah. asked. Oh, yeah. Well, for is sure. this something we want to do? <laughs> 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 oh, sure. Yeah. I'd love to see cystic fibrosis go away. But, you know, right, are we going right. to suddenly be saying, well, I only want to have, you know, this these qualities in a human being? Is that really where we want to go? And so science leads us there. And back in Galileo's day, it was astronomy, right? It, there, was mm-hmm. a, there was a real big um, issue there with astronomy and the church. And while it is often mistold, uh, Galileo uh, actually was was not um, trying, or the, I should say that the church was not threatened by what Galileo was saying. It was the way he was saying it and the timing was very bad for the church. And so when Galileo comes along and starts saying that Copernicus is right and everything else, the church had no problem with that but they were also fighting the reformation at the time and they just didn't want Galileo to make any statements about whether this is you know the way it is in the bible just stay away from the bible but Galileo couldn't do that and so we we had this big this big fight but it was the first one of the first times when science and philosophy started to clash and these these are always going to happen i think we're always going to have these discussions, the more we know about the universe, the more we know about the the nature itself, these kinds of questions are going to come up. And I think artists play a good role. I keep coming back to artists because you, you're one, Jenny, and I know that you can articulate this thing, maybe not verbally, but visually to people, right? I mean, these are things that that comes out of science. This is the kind of beauty that science can provide.
2: Oh, 100%. I mean, <clears throat> even on a basic... When you're looking at a color palette, when you're if you're creating if you're a visual artist creating a painting, something as simple as certain colors, you know, the the science of color. Right. And how psychologically that can draw somebody to a painting and using complementary colors and um, using various textures and shapes that can kind of um, evoke certain emotions in people. I mean, that's a very real thing. Um, and that's a marriage of the two, right? That's that's a piece of art that is now scientifically, if you will, um, if if artists are choosing to go that route, engineered um, to make you feel a certain way, whether that's extremely comfortable and happy and warm, or really uncomfortable and and start challenging some of your beliefs. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, man, I mean, we could go down the wormhole all day, but I think it's, it's absolutely, you can compartmentalize them and bring them back together. I think it's just sort of this ebb and flow of the two. It's
1: a great way to say it, you know, challenge your beliefs. I think that both make you do that. Mm -hmm. I think that art certainly makes you, I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? Is to make you think and uh, make you think differently. Right. But I think science does exactly the same thing. I mean, look, you know, I think that, A lot of our morality and what we choose to call right or wrong comes from either fear or love percent. you know, a lot of times the the things that we really take hard stances on are things we're scared of and things we don't understand, like the witch trials, right? Right, That can't happen when science takes us to a place that we recognize there's nothing here to be afraid of. And as science passes this threshold, we realize this is no longer a threat. We can move on from that and quit calling it part of, you know, the foundation of our morality or something that we have to make laws against. You know, it's like if people still didn't have images from outer space of the earth, if they still believed that the earth was on a turtle's back, there'd probably be a lot of people going to jail for eating turtle soup, you know? <laughs> and I think we start to really define things in a better way, the more we understand, and our morality evolves, whether people, you know, even even on that, right? Like take a stance against evolution. It's funny because, you know, religions and morality evolve just like everything else. <laughs> Yeah.
0: And that's why I think all three of us in our own way are considered science communicators. I consider myself that in the in the most obvious sense. But Justin, you're a science communicator in the sense that you make equipment and and photons available to those who may not have access to it. And Jenny, you're communicating the same thing, but you're also providing uh, communication avenues to people who are more susceptible to the. Art, the the visual and the artist realm, and so when we are communicating these ideas, I think it's we need to be careful not to be too um, one sided in the way that we express our ideas, because it has this this tendency to put off a lot of other people. And I think some science communicators w- tend to do that. They might they might get belligerent about certain ideas and beliefs, but to the extent that right. you can make your case about the beauty of science. I think it makes itself uh, obviously. So
1: yeah, it can be very polarizing. I I agree with you, and um, it's it's sometimes sometimes it is difficult. Like I understand why, because when you watch a lot of the professional astronomers talk, um, you know, probably too many. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it can get aggressive. Mm -hmm. It, It can get. To be, um, you know, especially when you see a lot of this stuff on like flat earth or, uh, some of the topics that have kind of become mainstream, you know, um, frustration points or astrology even for astronomers. Right. But is that really necessary? If the whole point is to educate, is that the way to educate? Is, is the way to educate to say what you're saying is stupid and frustrating or is it to say let's talk about the points just like with everything else in science. Let's look at each component and let's lay out the, the pieces that we know and if something if anything no matter how ridiculous it sounds uncovers a piece that we don't know. Here's reason for us to expand our knowledge on whatever particular part it is, and that is the scientific process, right? That that's the whole point is addressing things, no matter how much we think we know for sure, this is right, yes.
2: right? I, I think even as simple um, as a astro image, you know, Dustin, certain examples where even if you pick a different. Color path, right? For a specific nebulae or nebula, and certain astronomers that are stuck in sure the fact of what it should actually look like based on the, yeah. the gas that's being emitted from that nebula or nebulae, it's like, oh, this is incorrect. You know, these are false colors, and this is mm-hmm. photoshopped, and this is not an accurate representation. Well, right. you know, that's your art, and you get to own that as your process. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be, you know, to to belligerently kind of hang your hat on the fact of like, well, this nebula is not the correct color or I've gotten some interesting
1: messages about that. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, of course, you know, and to each their own. Um, But I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing to make it your process and that's for everyone.
0: Yeah, let me just tell you where I think that comes from, because I think that where you get these belligerent responses to things like whether it's one of my videos that I've made or some astrophotos that you've posted, maybe where you've taken liberties with the color palette, it all comes back down to the fear that you were talking about, Justin, earlier. And that is that when when a science concept is being communicated and it is outside or unfamiliar uh, with the experience of the people that you're communicating to, and they get maybe defensive, understandably so, or a little bit afraid. The thing to not do, and that many people, I think communicating science do is they will say, well, you're an idiot for being afraid. Let me, you know, let me let me stay within the realm of what I'm of, of my scientific idea without then going outside the realm of science and calling everybody else, you know, idiots or 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 ignorant or whatever it happens to be. Because what other effect would that have on people than to make them defensive and not want to listen to you? And I've seen that in many cases. And it always happens when the big name science communicators, I won't mention who they are, but they will immediately, they're known for communicating science. But then they go into areas they shouldn't go into and say things like, well, we don't need philosophy anymore. Or sooner or later, we're going to have an answer for God. And they, they go in and they, they make statements that are not scientific even though they're supposed to be communicating science and that is outside their realm. And that causes a lot of distrust. So to the extent that we stay within our lanes, but do it in a way, you know, that, that might appeal to as the widest population as we possibly can, I think is the way we should go. And the three of us, when I think about this, as I'm talking, the three of us are each taking different branches of the same idea. And I think it is healthy. Healthy. I think that what we're, we're being inclusive in everything that we try to do and understanding in the concepts that we're trying to purvey that maybe, just maybe, somebody might get a little freaked out by this. And so, you know, we, we'd make our art or our, astropho- our astrophotos or our videos in a way I think that's very inclusive. So I think that distrust is getting worse. But I think that by doing art and by giving talks and by making telescopes available to everybody that we can mitigate some of that. Mm-hmm. That's thing I don't, thing mean, I to be, love I don't about. mean to. I hope I'm not like preaching, but this is something I've thought a lot about. So, no, I, no, no. no I, yeah. I, I hope I'm not dominating this. I, I just feel passionate. It's super interesting.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting, and it's <laughs> I it's not something that's talked about enough. And it's um, you're right. Like especially coming from the top with with the people that are the biggest names, it always shocks me too the direction those conversations go because they they can be very polarizing and this stuff should be unifying Mm -hmm. and nothing else. And, um, the, the conversation, that's the entire point is to unify. And when it goes to that place, it seems like both sides tend to take it to that place. Right. You know, the science communicators in general and the people that have the alternative idea, it's like both I don't know if there's fear on both sides or just frustration or it's just too much time on task or what the issue is, but both tend to be, no, you're stupid. You're just wrong, period, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, oh, okay, cool. That was a great discussion, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we had
0: that. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let That's me just very go, helpful. Go stand over here <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't well. know if you'd call that more of a discussion or, or what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not much of an exchange there, but no, I think it's important. The, these these uh, topics and ideas and uh, you know they should be expressed um, with passion. I think, and yeah, I, I think it's good to have varying opinions come together. At the end of the day, you're questioning. Everything, and I think that's the importance of all of it, whether it's art, whether it's science, what have you, um, you're having to really kind of push the boundaries of what maybe makes you feel comfortable in your own personal beliefs um, and sort of step outside of that and see things from a larger perspective um, and open your your eyes, your heart, your mind to wow, I've never really thought of it that way. I'm being challenged in this in new and uh, really uncomfortable way, but to accept that kind of um, openly and willingly, I think's important. It pushes us forward. Um, personally, it pushes us forward as a human race, and I think it's very important. So yeah, I yeah. love these discussions.
0: Yeah. Well, I I just want to just mention a brief story I had where I back when the. Uh, the solar eclipse was happening in August of 2017, I thought I'd make a video because it was a lot of confusion. The flat earthers in particular were saying there is no way that the shadow of the moon can go from west to east. And because everybody knows the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and there's no way the shadow can go the opposite way. And they were, to their credit, were trying to actually explain... And, and duplicate the geometry of a solar eclipse in their own videos with with experiments that they were doing and so what they would do is they would take a flashlight and a tennis ball and they would shine it on the wall and they would try to get first of all they would try to get the shadow of the ball to be smaller than the shadow of of, of another you know like the earth they couldn't get the the shadow of the moon to get smaller with their little with their experiment and I thought that was to their credit, that they were trying to do that, but the problem they were they were having was they were using too small of a light source. They needed a they didn't they didn't the sun is quite large compared to the moon, and they needed a much bigger light source to get a smaller shadow on the moon. And so, I tried to you know address some of those concerns over my videos that I had made, and 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 talk about it on on YouTube, and. All I got was a lot of belligerent responses and and called an idiot. I got a lot of views because a lot of the people that they, <laughs> they posted to their flat earth friends, you know, that, oh, that this guy was trying to explain it and look at him fail. And uh, I, I asked my wife, I said, she's a philosopher. And I said, how how do you reach these people? What do you say to them that they will listen to? And she said something I'll never forget. She said, you start from where they are and then mm. you you build your, your your arguments that way. You say, "Well, okay, why do you think that you can't get the moon shadow smaller than you than in, in any of your experiments?" And they'll tell you why. And they say, "Okay, well, why don't you try a larger light? We know that the sun is bigger than the than way bigger than the moon. Try a much larger light source, like maybe a big LED uh, lighting square or something, and see if you can't do it that way." And that actually does work. Um, so. I mean, this, there's ways if we're conscious about the barriers that are separating us between science, philosophy, religion, whatever it happens to be, we can overcome it, but we have to start with where they are. And I think the work that, that, you know, artists do, I think that brings that to people on on a completely different oblique level. You're not talking science, you're talking art, a level that they may understand, a, a language they understand. And so... Um, I think, I think there's by starting from where they are, we get there. We eventually,
2: (laughs) I think that's beautiful. And that's like really good advice. I I always kind of say you can only meet people as deeply as they've met themselves, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way your, your wife put it is a little more concise and, and more relatable, but, um, I'm sure cat runs into this maybe sometimes with her paintings, right? Somebody sees a piece of artwork and Mm -hmm. somebody says, Oh my gosh, that's going to match my drapes perfectly. Right, you know, and Cat may feel defeated, whereas someone else might look at that painting and be absolutely enamored by the cosmos and start going deeper and asking certain questions. So. Yeah,
1: she actually described that. Did when she? We were talking. I don't remember if it was before we jumped on here, or for her podcast, mm-hmm. or if it was on the podcast itself. But yeah, she said she's like nothing. You know, she puts so much of herself into those paintings. Yes. And then what what matters to her is exactly what we're talking about, bringing this to people in a way that moves them and makes them ask the questions about Mm -hmm. this and share those questions and the philosophy, the perspective it provides you. And so for her, that's what those paintings are about. But for some people, it's exactly that. And she was saying that can be very, not only just frustrating, but a little bit defeating because, Mm -hmm. yeah, somebody's like, oh, yeah, that's a cool painting. It matches my couch. And like there, there is nothing deeper than that. And she's like, but it's everyone's own world. It's their right. life. It's right. what matters to them. And, you know, but I, I could definitely see that. And we all do live in our own little bubbles. So yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not always going to be what everybody wants it to be.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you two a question. So, I mean, I know that there's plenty of nights that you're out under the stars, you've got your equipment and Dustin, all you're thinking about is getting the right exposure or putting in the right filter. Uh, but what, when you're when you're unquiet on those quiet moments when you're not doing any of that what do you guys think about what is your what's the most important question that pops into your mind philosophically when you look at the cosmos
2: wow that's a dynamite question
0: yeah <laughs> Yeah, thanks for the heads up, Tony. Man.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking about how I didn't bring to... I don't have a way to go to the
0: bathroom out of here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're supposed to hit me with this one two months in advance. Well, don't you think? Of, okay, preparing. well,
0: if you don't, then say that. I don't think about anything, Tony. I think about what where no. the bathroom is or what, you know. No, no, no. What, what filter I'm going to put in.
1: <laughs> I'll let you start, Jen. Gives me a few
0: seconds to think. This is a deep oh, question. Oh, man. Um, well, I, I, okay, I while you i give you both a chance to think for me, it's the distances to the stars. When I think about mm. each one of those points of light uh, is a, an entire sun and an enormous, in some cases, enormous star billions of light years away or millions of light years away, hundreds of light years away, and also tens or dozens, hundreds of times bigger than our sun. And those photons are making their way and they've spent hundreds Thousands, millions of years getting to my eyeball, and it's hit my retina, and I saw it, and then it's gone. (laughs) And I wonder if the photon is pissed off that that's where it ended up. (laughs) Man, if I (laughs) travel, I'm sorry. So I try to appreciate it more. It's like, you know, I want to thank every photon for (laughs) taking the time to hit my retina. That's what I think about. I would be if I
1: traveled trillions of miles at that speed and landed in your eye. I would be pissed. That's
0: like man. what? This is what? Oh man! I, couldn't, couldn't I have been on the Hubble wifc 3 camera or something? No, I want Tony's eyeball. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think
2: uh, no. That's that's great. I think for me, maybe the the biggest um, question that kind of keeps coming into my mind is. You know, obviously we started with this with visual astronomy and we're limited by our just the anatomy, the sheer anatomy of our eyes, right? You're speaking of the retina and how much light we can actually allow in before having to blink um, and just what it is to be human. We can only see so much. And then once you dive into some of the science and, and adapt some of the additional technology, now you can see things that your naked eye just simply can't. Um, when you start taking these exposures and you're out there under the stars, I'm out there under the stars and you're exposing a nebula and it comes through with maybe a 15 second exposure, depending on the nebula, how bright it is, you're going to have to adjust accordingly, obviously. Um, you know, you see this image come through on your computer screen and it's like, wow, that's absolutely stunning. Then you maybe double that or triple that and you're able to see more. I think what's crazy to me is how, Limited we are by the technology, Um, limited we are just being humans alone. And then once we start adapting some of the technology, it's incredible how much more you can see. But my mind goes to where are we going to be in 20 years? Where are we going to be in even five years? Right? Um, Because astronomy equipment, especially, is only getting more affordable. It's only advancing. You can start doing more with less. Um, And I just can't help but think where are we going to be in the future? You know, are we going to make it elsewhere out there in the galaxy somewhere? Um, Maybe not my generation, but many generations to come. So I kind of, um, I think about the now, but then I I constantly can't help but just think about the future, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And where that technology is going to lead us to next. What about you, Dee?
1: Yeah, well, I think both of you had uh, had great answers. Although yours was probably better than Tony's. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> it was way better than mine. <laughs> Tony's like, I think about our photons pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well,
2: <laughs> that was such a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> I should. Um, I'm
0: sorry, but I, I, I should... do. I wonder, is like, are you really annoyed that this? I'm sorry. I, I appreciate you coming. Yeah, that, uh,
2: Honestly, that brings up a whole nother question about consciousness and, right, uh, right, you know, right. do photons have consciousness, yeah, but yeah. we won't dive into that wormhole. So
1: I think that, uh, so I should probably preface mine by saying I'm not a religious person, um, at all, but I, you know, I am fascinated with philosophy. I actually spent my first four years at, uh, Auburn for philosophy. So love to have that conversation with your wife, Tony.
0: Oh, I'd love to get um, her on too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I've always, I've always loved existentialism. And so, you know, I think that it's kind of the more uh, optimistic form of nihilism. You know, it's the active form of nihilism, as Mm -hmm. I've heard it put. But, um, you know, you can't look at this stuff when I'm taking photos and it comes in. I can't see one of these images come in and not think about the scale. The scale is what always draws me into it, because you look at any one of these photos and I might have, you know, 100 galaxies in one image that you just see as the background it's not even the target i'm shooting it's right. just in the background there's all these galaxies everywhere and i love thinking about and this is one something that pops into my head uh, frequently when i'm imaging you know this the parallel between our existence and our experience, mm-hmm. right? The physical world that we live in, and then the way we experience that world. And I think that when I'm when I'm taking these images of space or just looking through a telescope or whatever it is, you see all these parallels between the two, like even the shapes the shapes at the, you know, at the microscopic level Mm. up to the galaxies and yeah, yeah, these repeating shapes and then like the, the laws of nature, like gravity and how in the physical world, gravity forces things into this dance of pairing off for, you know, a planet and its moon or moons and this natural pairing off of things into clusters and groups and even just single pairs for the life of these, these uh, objects or for just extended periods of time or whatever period of time. But you see the same thing in our life experience and you see this natural pairing off between people Mm -hmm. or into groups of people or Mm -hmm. friendships or whatever it is. And so these are the kind of thoughts that, you know, this is all very surface that we're talking about now, but I'd say that, you know, you can't, look at any one of these images and not ask these these larger questions and so what starts as hey i got a 10 minute sub here check this out it's a black and white photo eventually it'll be color and you know a week when i finish this image or whatever it is it starts you know a 10 minute picture starts a 10 hour dive deeper introspectively Mm -hmm. into my own understanding of not only you know why am I here? But where am I exactly? And what does that mean? Right? Like, what is there purpose or or any of the other philosophical questions that have to fundamentally have to be attached to that image? Mm.
0: Okay, great. Well, I can see I'm going to have to work on this a little bit, on my answer (laughs) a little bit more. (laughs) No, that's really good. Um, so I'd like to move just a little bit to the innovation aspect of the hobby because, Jenny, you were talking about the uh, the, the the wavelengths and the, the colors and the stuff that we're going on, you know, that you can see through the telescopes and how we are. With each new technology level, we're able to expand what we can see a little bit more. And you guys have been really on the forefront of a lot of this technological development for the amateur, and most notably with your with your filters uh, that you've developed, the um, yeah the triad.
1: Tri- triad, and triad ultra.
0: I, so my question is, do you where do you guys look to go for deciding where next to be on, on the innovative front? Like, do you do you look at, at professional astronomy, for example, at what they're trying to do now, and say, hey, let's try maybe bring that to the amateur? Or do you have other sources that you draw on to decide? Where the next big thing in amateur astronomy might be
1: you know the beauty of being in this industry is that amateur astronomers are some of the most intelligent people walking the planet absolutely and when we look for the right questions to ask to find the next thing needed, that's who we look to is our customer base mm-hmm. um, and our our team here at OPT is a fairly sizable team and we ask them on a daily basis, what are you finding? What are people needing? What are the complaints? What are the the nuisances? What are things that we can solve? What's the problem we can solve? And Talking to the majority of the industry, the way we are fortunate enough to get to do that, um, we hear about the problems as they come up, and we hear about the the places that something is needed. And our staff here has the freedom to bring these things up. We actually track them on you know a daily basis, whatever whatever's needed, and then we start attacking it. I mean, the the triad filter took six months to develop from the time that two of our staff here came up with the idea, but. It's one of those simple questions, which is: Should this exist, and is it possible for this to to exist? And if the answer to both of those is yes, we start working on it.
2: Yeah, and I think you know the beauty of of our staff, especially, is they're super creative problem solvers. Um, they're they're talking to our customer basis, you know, on a daily basis, hourly basis, constantly. As Dustin said, kind of getting these requests in and then sort of marinating in that and thinking oh man what if we could create x product you know that would so, there's a huge gap in the industry a huge gap here um, this problem needs solving and i mean honestly they just have these phenomenal ideas we we have a huge board here at OPT called a better board and i can't tell you how how fast that thing fills up with Ideas for new products, ways to better service customers, um, just innovative ideas that, you know, sometimes are pipe dreams that are way far off. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, we distill those and put those on paper and it becomes an actual product that we can service our customers and the industry at at wide and make this thing more accessible, make it more easy and more affordable. Um, And those are always, you know, um, things that we're constantly trying to do for, for our customers.
1: So I guess my question then, Tony, would be you know, you have a different perspective than we do here. We um we have a professional services side of the company that only deals with, you know, the NASA, JPL and and SSA community, those types of things. But you're dealing with the professionals through your talks and and other um, you know, media channels that it's more of a one on one discussion instead of a call for, hey, here's a project, here's something we need. What what do you think, from your experience, that some of the gaps are? What do you think people are looking for or will be looking for in the
0: future? Well, some of the gaps that I see already, you guys are starting to fill or you're being involved in filling it. The big one that I see right now is light pollution. and. To the yeah, to one. the extent that uh, amateur or professional astronomers, they can go and build a, a an observatory on the high in the Andes mountains and not ever have to deal with light pollution, nor do they have to deal with water vapor in the atmosphere. So they can do infrared astronomy and all kinds of really cool things. To the extent that we can mitigate that for amateurs, I think is is a place to really innovate. And you guys are doing that with partly with the Triad filter, but you're also involved with SpaceFab right so that you we're actually getting involved in space telescopes for amateur astronomers and that is something that professionals have owned since the first space telescope was ever launched so this is right. that's a new innovation right there and i don't know if it's going to be about filters or wavelength ranges where where we're coming next but the infrared is huge and if we can bring mm-hmm, the infrared to amateur astronomers somehow uh, i think that would be a big area to look for so i think the professionals where they are now is where amateurs could be in say 5 or maybe 10 years depending on a lot of factors like technology imaging uh, chip technology things like that so uh, and and also you know whether we can overcome some of the natural limiting factors like there's nothing you can do about water vapor if you've got a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere you can't just suddenly get rid of it but maybe you could make a tunable infrared filter that can go directly around it you know in a way that you can still get some images i don't know but well you know what's funny is like uh we just, so two days ago,
1: sent three scopes. So we're stocking, and this isn't even on our website or anywhere yet. So people listening to this podcast hear about <laughs> it before it even is here. Oops! But um yeah, we are stocking for the first time ever gold-plated mirrors for telescopes. We are keeping them in stock all the time now. And it's for exactly that, infrared, because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you we feel like this is something that people probably should have a deeper interest in. You know, obviously it's a lot more regulated because you don't want people using this for, uh, uh.
0: you know, the <laughs> wrong reasons. Right. But, um, Yeah, I mean, I think that I I agree with you. Wow, so I I did not know that. So gold, for those of you who don't know, is highly reflective in the infrared. And we're not talking about a lot here. You're not talking about, you know, a a wedding's ring worth of gold here. But, you know, we're talking about a very, you know, in the case of James Webb Space Telescope, for example, it's like one or two atoms thick. You know, the whole telescope is coated with something that might be a few ounces of gold. So it's not a lot. Uh, And so that's good. I did not know that. But I do think that because... When you look at your distant galaxies through your CMOS detectors or through your aluminum-coated reflecting mirrors, uh, you're only looking at a certain part of the universe. You're only looking up to a certain point. Everything else has shifted into the infrared, and you can't see it. You never will. So that, I think that domain is next for amateurs. And to the extent that we can open it up, I think it's great. Space telescopes are a part of it. Space Fab will definitely play a role because if they yeah. can put some infrared detectors up on on there and i don't think their plans are for that right now um, no. but we you know that would be a way you could get at galaxies that are you know redshift 8 you know that's pretty far away
1: well, we're going to we're going to launch more than just one space telescope. This is just the first one, but we have plans to launch, you know, a Several, lot. Yeah, yeah. 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 Over a dozen. So there's going to be a lot of space telescopes, but you know, I think even that, and so I don't have anything bad to say, obviously about our project with space fab. I mean, I think launching a space telescope is going to be the most badass thing. ass <laughs> sure. We, we, yeah, we, we love it. And the project is, is definitely needed, but I think even at a, at a certain point, space telescopes won't be as needed because of active and adaptive optics. You know, they're, they're coming along so quickly that if the price can come down on those and as the technology gets better and better, the resolutions from the ground are going to get so good that, you know, it can compensate for that atmospheric disturbance so quickly that you can get a greater resolution because you can put a telescope on the ground that's, you know, a hundred times the size of what you can put into space for practical reasons and. If you're changing the shape of your mirrors in real time to compensate for the atmosphere, I mean you are getting resolutions that
0: are just absurd. That's a good point. I keep forgetting about adaptive optics. that's a that's another realm which I think should be brought down to the amateur level. right now, I think I th- you you guys can get uh, telescopes that have they're not um, they're not adaptive optics exactly. They have like what do they call uh, tilt mirrors. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a uh, it's refractive. So it's mm-hmm. um, tilt lenses. Tilt lenses. But they're they're tip tilt. Yeah. And so it's not truly. Um, You know, adaptive optics, but it does definitely improve the. uh, So, what it does is it solves the inertial problem of swinging your entire system to guide it. Instead, you're just tipping and tilting this tiny little refractive element, and you can do it multiple times a second. You might make 10 corrections a second instead of, you know, one correction every two seconds. So, it definitely improves the sharpness in an image. But true, you know, adaptive optics are reshaping the mirror to match the atmospheric disturbance. And so, that's a that's a completely different level, and it's not one that Jenny and I are ready to tackle just yeah. yet. Yeah, but, that's
2: more than just an accessory. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a full blown that's, scope. Yeah, that's a project and <laughs> yeah. a half. So, yeah,
1: but I think eventually that will be brought to the amateur community, just like everything else. And, um, you know when it when it is, that's going to be another game changer.
0: Okay. Uh, well, Jenny, is there anything else you want to want to add to the podcast before we end?
2: No, I think we we covered a lot of uh, great topics and good discussion and. No, there's nothing additional. I think.
0: <laughs> okay, well, you got it all. You got it all on this one, folks. You got a, you got a, a philosophical discussion as well as an artistic one, as well as you know the innovations in amateur astronomy. So we covered the whole gamut in this in this episode. So this was really great. I had fun. I thought that I, I I enjoyed talking about a lot of this stuff. So thank you so yeah. much, guys. Oh, yeah,
2: I liked it. Oh, thank you, Tony. All
0: right. Well, thank you, guys. My uh, my our guest today was Jenny Saint Lawrence. She she is the partner and business partner of Dustin Gibson, my co-host of OPT Telescopes. And uh, I I just want to say you guys are doing awesome work. Keep doing it. Keep going, guys. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.